I just thought at that point, that woman doesn't know what a vertebrae is. Um, because if my vertebrae weren't in a correct order, there'd be serious issues. Um, <laughs> Hi, and welcome to another stellar episode of 80% Mental, the ultimate sports psychology podcast with me, Dr. Pete Olushaga and Hugh Gilmore. Hugh, how are you today? I'm not too bad, Pete. Things are good. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to another 80% Mental podcast. Yeah, this is the first one that we've done in the morning as well. So I don't know, how's getting up early? Uh, I just about got out of bed. <laughs> Okay, well, we've covered quite a bit in the last last few episodes as well. We've really explored a lot of the key concepts in sports psychology, talked about some of the skills and the tools that athletes and coaches might use. We've covered topics like anxiety, um, setting goals that actually work, the sorts of things that we should be saying to ourselves when we're training, when we're competing. We've looked at some of the theory behind those skills as well and, and maybe how athletes, coaches and practitioners might apply them in the real world. Um, what's kind of stood out to you, Hugh, as, as, as some of the kind of highlights of those those episodes? You know, I think for me, it's like, it's nice to hear really good sports psychs talking about being specific in terms and operationalizing things uh, and bringing it down into the, you know, what it actually looks like in a day-to-day basis because i think that's the big thing that is missing in a lot of sports psych is how does this look on a day-to-day basis you know for example dave collins talking about uh, triangulation you know it's what the mm. athlete says what that how the athlete behaves and then also what the sports psych sees but then again you could go one step back and say you could use other staff members to triangulate um, so yeah, things like that, just really helpful, basic tips of like, how is it actually done and what does it actually look like? Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's really nice to kind of hear people talk about what it looks like in the real world. And that's kind of what we want to do with this podcast is kind of demystify some of the, the world of sports psychology. As usual, we're going to start the episode with a question. And that question is, what's the deal with mindfulness? Now, if you've been living under a rock Maybe you haven't heard of mindfulness, but I would imagine that most people have come across it at some point. Try to think of examples. You know, we've seen LeBron James practicing mindful meditation during timeouts in basketball games. We've seen sports teams like the the Seattle Seahawks in American football hiring sports psychologists specifically to to teach mindfulness. And a few of the the GB athletes after the the Rio Olympics talked about mindfulness being useful for them in preparation for and performing at the Olympics. I think Tom Daly uh, talked about it and Laura Kenny, the cyclist as well, talked about using mindfulness. So I think most people have probably got a bit of an idea about what mindfulness actually is, but we're going to try, like I say, to demystify it a little bit for maybe people who are unsure about the specifics. Um, We're going to delve into a little bit of the research, maybe find out how when and if mindfulness actually works. So helping us uh, to answer that question today, we have Joe Mannion. Joe's about to earn his doctorate in clinical psychology from Pepperdine University, where he created an eight-week mindfulness program specifically for athletes. He's also completed training in neuropsychology and holds a master's degree in sports psychology. And Joe's used mindfulness approaches extensively with athletes and executives. And 
and I know he's very proud of this, Joe wrote the first mindfulness chapter in one of the most widely used sports psychology textbooks, which I'm sure any students listening will have will have heard of. Uh, it's the, the Williams and Crane Applied right. Sports Psych yeah. textbook. Yeah, it was a real circle of life moment for me because that's what I used coming up, even as an undergrad. You know, I think we were on the second or third edition when I was an undergrad, and now it's in its eighth edition. Well, I remember using that book as well. So, so congratulations. Thank you. Um, and and how are you doing? So, obviously, it's um, it's early in the morning for us, but you're you're a little bit behind, aren't you? Uh, yeah, it's about. Uh, it's on the 1 a.m. hour here. So on the, on, I'm in Los Angeles on the west coast of the U.S. Well, well we, we really appreciate you uh, joining us at such a late hour for you and an early hour for us. Um, we want to get straight into it, really. Um, and the, the, the first question, again, we kind of hear a lot of different definitions. People have different understanding. So from your kind of expert point of view, Joe, I wonder if you could just tell us in 30 seconds or so, wh- what is mindfulness? Sure. Well, mindfulness, I think, you know, it's commonly defined as a sort of deliberate type of awareness that is characterized by being non-judgmental or maybe even a better word, compassionate attention towards our present moment thoughts, feelings, body sensations, as well as the environment. And, And it's really a continuous process of bringing our attention back to those things because our attention tends to drift um, as they would say like in eastern traditions almost like a drunken monkey it just kind of bounces around um, <laughs> and uh, anyone who's ever sat and meditated they, they can probably relate to you know noticing their awareness just jumping around and you kind of mentioned uh, you know eastern philosophy there it's it's mindfulness is something that we see a lot of in mainstream media popularized by a million and one mindfulness apps every health magazine has got a, a you know a section on mindfulness but it's not something that's new is it oh it's definitely not new probably most commonly people attribute it to like buddhist philosophy and traditions um going back 2500 years but there's actually uh evidence you know that it goes even further back in hindu traditions even possibly 5,000 years ago. So it's definitely not new. Um, it's also not new in the sense that we tend to think of it as something that we're, that's new, that we're going to learn. But it's really a, a type of awareness that we've all experienced in our own day-to-day lives. It's kind of harnessing the qualities, though, in a more deliberate way to, to strengthen those mental muscles. And I think the other thing with the with the definition is that you know we talk about that awareness, a present moment experience, but the other there's another part to that definition as well is that kind of acceptance of of that present moment experience as well. Um, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, we can sort of. I usually like if I'm working with athletes or other types of performers, I'll you know that's kind of the 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 most distilled uh, definition. But there's, you know, we can elaborate on other qualities of that awareness. And I I tend to throw in acceptance, as you mentioned, a sort of accepting disposition of whatever's coming up, uh, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant thoughts, feelings, body sensations, and even maybe going a step beyond acceptance, including like curiosity, like sort of an active investigation and sort of openness to the experience. Um, I I actually, uh, when I was 
you know, preparing for this, I, I it came to my mind um, about the acceptance piece that how different the conversation can sound when you're doing things from a mindfulness-based approach compared to say the traditional sports psychology approaches. Traditional approaches tend to focus on changing the content, for example, of our thoughts, whereas mindfulness-based approaches emphasize acceptance. So in, it was 2016 ASP, and uh, incidentally, I, I don't have permission to tell this story, but I think um, <laughs> I think the individuals will be forgiving on this one. Um, but uh, I was invited to be on this. This it was build uh, the who's who of mindfulness in sports psychology. This panel, okay, there were six of us, and I remember being up on the the stage, and. Uh, on my right was Renee Apeniel, and on my left was Amy Balzo. And then on the other side of Amy, there are like a couple other giants. There's like Peter Haberl from the U.S. Olympic Training Center, who's all mindfulness all the time. And then Frank Gardner and Zella Moore, who authored really the seminal article of mindfulness in the sports psychology literature. And we were supposed to give five slides in five minutes on our favorite uh, mindfulness intervention, right? So no pressure. And I don't know how many people were in the audience, but there were, it was probably double digit percentage of the entire conference. I, I was in the audience. I oh, that, I, that is hilarious. Okay. Okay. So, you know, all right. So it's standing room only. And, and we're just kind of hanging out waiting, you know, for everyone to come. And, and so, I don't, between me, Renee and Amy, Somebody broke the ice and was like, what the hell have we gotten ourselves into? And, and so we're like, yeah, I'm nervous as hell. So we're freaking out. But the conversation sounded much different. We're, it was like, yeah, we're freaking out. We're anxious. And that's okay. <laughs> that's how it is. You know, that's how it is going. Of course, that's how we're feeling right now. And uh, so that acceptance piece can be very counterintuitive in the sport, sports culture in general, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I think we'll, we'll probably touch on that a little bit later on. Um, Hugh, what what are your thoughts on all of this? I mean, is, is mindfulness something that you use as a as a practitioner? Well, it's interesting because, in a sense, I'm really excited to have Joe on today. He's got a wealth of experience. Uh, I'm interested to get out of of his experience the difference between sport psychology mindfulness and clinical psychology mindfulness, and I think. We'll hopefully get to explore that but it's something i have used and i've used uh, an app that was given to me by an organization and then later found out the evidence didn't support that app and i just thought like that, that's typical of sports psychology jumping in ahead of maybe the evidence base with an app or typical of an entrepreneur create creating an app um it's one that you've probably had uh, advertisements for in your social media so that being said like i've been skeptical of of mindfulness but actually having listened to Joe previously, uh, I'm actually really excited to hear what he says. And I'm looking forward to learn about this. Um, I suppose, Joe, when you say, first of all, what is mindfulness? How, how is this different from, you know, cognitive reframing or restructuring that uh, would, would occur within CBT? You know, I, I think from your definition of what mindfulness is, it's understanding and accepting the present moment. Whereas, you know, a CBT therapist might teach somebody to reframe it. 
in a way whereby they challenge their thoughts as opposed to just sit in the experience. And I'm just really curious about the two different approaches. For sure. Um, and I mean, it wasn't lost on me that you guys named my episode, What's the Deal with Mindfulness? So I thought, oh, well, we're coming in with a healthy level of skepticism, which I think is fine because I actually come from a, a more humanistic uh, approach. That's one of my sort of uh, guiding philosophies. And, and that really emphasized figuring out like what works for you. And that may not be what works for LeBron James. And that's okay. Um, so kind of just starting from that and it really kind of a phenomenological approach, meaning that I encourage anyone to really kind of deep dive into their own experience to find out what is working for them or what's not working for them. So when it comes to mindfulness, um, versus like the cognitive restructuring and whatnot, or reframing thoughts, et cetera, as we said, yeah, mindfulness is more about accepting what we hear going on in our heads. And, and there's a reason there, I mean, there are various reasons for that, but I like to kind of distill it down to, you know, we're not, we're not trying to change the content of, for example, our thoughts as much as we are our relationship to those thoughts. So like in the West, we tend to relate to uh, our thoughts, feelings, body sensations. I would say there are four, four particular characteristics come to mind that are particularly relevant. So we tend to relate to our thoughts as though they're accurate, as though they are almost equivalent to external reality, that they're sort of almost law-like. Like So whatever we hear, hear going on in our heads, um, almost feel compelled to conform our behavior to what we're hearing. And then lastly, we tend to identify with the thoughts that we have in our heads or the, how we're feeling. So there's a tendency to, to kind of be what we would call in sort of the mindfulness approach, uh, a tendency to be fused with that content. Now, again, kind of going back to this this idea of phenomenology, of, of really deep diving into our experience, and I think we can all readily attest that it's more accurate to say that our thoughts, for example, they're often inaccurate, often irrelevant. They're not equal to external reality. They're their own kind of thing you know, passing inner sensations, they're certainly not the law. We don't have to do what we hear going on in our heads. And we also distinguish them from who we are. So that some of these things might sound a little, I don't know, abstract or esoteric, but there are ways to kind of make these things a little bit more relevant. So just like you take, for example, well, it's not who I am. Well, that sounds kind of philosophical. Well, in I think in like one basic question, we can sort of flesh that out. And that is, if you're noticing your thoughts in your head, who's doing the noticing, right? So there's a noticer, there's like an observer or an observing self. I and mean, we kind of commonly use those phrases in, in mindfulness. Um, the idea is if, if what's going on is just kind of, if those are just transient passing thoughts, they're often not accurate, they're not law, they're not equal to external reality, they're not who we are. Why do we even need to worry about managing them? I mean, that's kind of distilling it down into the difference. Joe, I wonder um, if if there's a way of perhaps giving an example of how that might work. You know, you, you talk about that the idea of noticing the observer self, being the person who's noticing 
the thoughts that we're having, you know, for an athlete, for example, you know, how would they, how would they maybe do that? How, how would they get into that mode where you're noticing thoughts rather than being caught up in them? There's, you know, there's various ways. Um, metaphors can be a really rich way to sort of convey these ideas um, or analogies. So in the case of sport, I think one that's, that's can be helpful because it, it's very relatable is almost any sport uh, when you have a competition, almost, almost, you know, every time there's going to be some sort of, uh, opposing fan base, like at a competition, you know? Um, and so when we can choose any sport just, to, to make it a little bit more concrete, but if we say take basketball, for example, you've got hecklers in the stands. Well, as a, as a player on the team that's being heckled, as you're coming down court, you're probably not going to stop mid-court and start arguing with the opposing fans to say, hey, what you're saying about my team, it's not accurate. Or please stop with the heckling. Try to make them stop, right? You're not going to do that. You'll probably, if you notice that they're there, you accept, yeah, that's just part of this game, and you just kind of carry on. It's the same sort of thing internally. So we all kind of have these uh, internal hecklers. Um, and so like that is one analogy for, for athletes who maybe, you know, need some more assistance. And we all do uh, with these ideas because we're so used to relating uh, in, in that traditional way to our thoughts. Another way you can do this is with teammates or with a coach. You just need a partner. Uh, I think as long as you have a good relationship and there's you know some trust there so that it's a productive experience. But you take one athlete who's you know been prepped on this kind of understands the basics and maybe they keep a diary of thoughts during practice or competition prior during after of what are some of those like negative thoughts what's the heckler inside nagging at you know and so whereas in a traditional approach you know you might try to change that content or dispute it and what you, what you could do in a mindfulness-based exercise is you could have a partner, you write those things down, and then the partner can follow that first athlete and say those, you know, those negative statements as the athlete is doing some skill or some component of their sport. So it gives you like, a, you know, it, it kind of helps create that separation, what we call diffusion in, in mindfulness. That's really interesting, Joe. Yeah. Yeah, I love that idea of, of thoughts as hecklers. And mindfulness is this idea that, well, we can't do anything about them. We can't stop them from heckling. But we need to be aware that they're there and kind of accept that they're going to be there and focus on what it is we're going to do anyway. Commit to you know what it is that, that we're trying to do in the first place, despite them being there. And mindfulness kind of being the idea of awareness and acceptance of those hecklers. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, and, and really, you know, the first article in the literature that Gardner and Moore wrote back in 2004 was kind of a Luther's 95 thesis, theses in, in a sense, because it was kind of, um, it was questioning some of the assumptions that are built into traditional approaches and looking at some of the, the literature. And, and what they suggested is, you know, and I come in, again, I come into it from like a humanistic perspective. Uh, managing sort of that content for some athletes is going to be like the way to go. It works for them. But for others who have a hard time with that, 
some people, for example, they try to tame those inner voices. They try to do, and it just doesn't work out. Like they're just really persistent, and that can be for for various reasons. Um, this is another way to 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 deal with what's going on inside. Yeah. So what Gardner and Moore, what they they said is, um, for some athletes, you know, if, if you're trying to manage the inner heckler during uh, a performance, there's an art. You know, there's a perspective that that is taking a limited resource which is our attention and putting it on something that in that is arguably task irrelevant right so if i'm focusing on what's going on inside of me those thoughts part of my attention is not on what's happening in practice or what my coach is saying or what my teammates are doing or what's happening in the action so that's how those arguments um, for doing things differently Mm. began to go and th- there's that notion of ironic processing exactly. as well, isn't there? You know, if we're trying not to think of it, something, so yep. we're trying to not think about all of the kind of talk that's going on in our heads or minds or those distractions, and what we're actually likely to do is is, is think about them even more. Exactly, yeah. So they, they cited that um, Wegner's uh, theory of ironic mental processes, uh, something like that. Um, basically what it says is if we're trying to suppress unwanted thoughts, for example, that there's there's like two processes. We have to first scan for uh, those unwanted thoughts. And then the second operation, the second mental operation is, is, uh, is a suppression uh, function. And as the theory goes, and, I, and uh, evidently, you know, there's, there's, some, there's some evidence for this, that under stress, that second process becomes compromised. That is the suppression function. So what happens is, there's the scanning function suppression's not working so yeah they call it like this this um hyper accessibility of unwanted thoughts or or these attempts to suppress unwanted thoughts under stress so if you're an athlete obviously you're trying to perform under pressure in various scenarios and when you're feeling the anxiety for some people and i think a lot of us can relate to this that's when it's like you know, the heckler is the loudest is when you really don't want the heckler to be, the, you know, that loud. So I'm going to, I'm going to just pull it back in here a second. Um, you mentioned like scanning and, and, and thought suppression uh, and ironic processing. It, whenever it is, is this like when somebody says like, don't think of a pink elephant and then all you can do is think of a pink elephant and that's what you're saying. The thoughts are. I think that's a great example. Is, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And then, and then from that, uh, instead of, say, if an athlete's stepping up to take a penalty, because we know already from this series that England can't take penalties and, and that's not going to change. I told um, you already, we've solved that problem. It's fine. <laughs> so what we're saying is that if if someone's stepping up to take penalties and they're thinking about missing uh, the penalty, they shouldn't even think about that. They should just accept that they're having that thought and then focus on where they're going to contact the ball and keeping their eye on the ball in the run-up. Exactly. Yeah. You know, a way to look at it is that there's not a, in the, the brain doesn't hear not or don't. So if, if you, as you say, somebody says, don't think of a pink elephant, you tell, you, you tell yourself, oh yeah, okay, don't think of a pink. Well, the brain doesn't hear don't, it just hears pink elephant. So as you said, you know, if you're, if you're in a competition, um, the reason I go back to those four, key components and just kind of try to reinforce them thoughts are 
are often not accurate. They're they're not equivalent to the like what's happening out here in the game or the match. They're not the law. So another quick exercise is um, is like I I can't tap my hand. Uh, I actually I got this at an ASP conference uh, back in the day. Um, it could be I can't anything, but let's say I can't tap my hand. So if I sit here and say I can't tap my hand, I can't tap my hand. I can't, and then what I'm doing is I'm actually, as I say that out loud, is I'm physically tapping my hand, one hand to the other. I can't tap my hand. I can't tap my hand. And you might have an athlete or a person do that for, you know, 30 seconds, and maybe switch it to internal dialogue. You're thinking, I can't tap my hand, I can't, and then you're actually continuing to physically tap your hand. It just demonstrates experientially, you know, thoughts don't automatically translate to external reality. So all that being the case. Why not just accept that they're coming and going, just like the hecklers in the stands, or you know, are, are talking smack, um, and 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 carry on. Bring your attention back to where it needs to be. Okay, so one of the things uh, uh, I'm, I'm familiar with in REBT, which is something I'm, that I'm trained in, and I'm not I'm, I'm not going to jump in, and we're going to debate the differences in in differences, different approaches. Um, because I think that'd be too much to to get into that today. But what if the thought is actually real? So what if it's like, um, here's an extreme example. What if the thought is, I've just missed that shot and you have just missed that shot? Or what if the thought is, I've got a sharp pain in my ankle and I do have a sharp pain in my ankle and it could be an injury? How how does how do would is mindfulness appropriate there, or is that a different approach? Is that the limitation of mindfulness? Well, I would say you know in the in the first example, um, which is you know having just made a mistake, that high performance sort of necessitates that we have our attention on what's happening in the moment, and so if we going into the new or next play our mind or our attention is on the mistake that happened in the past. Again, part of our attention is diverted to something that's no longer happening. Now, that's not to say there isn't uh, you know, a, a time to reflect on mistakes, to learn from mistakes. Um, the question is, you know, are, are we talking about like during practice where maybe a coach is helping us reflect, make some changes, um, or is this like during a, a, a game? Um, in the in the scenario of the of an injury, again, going back to kind of what I was saying about this idea of an observing self, uh, it's not that thoughts never matter. Um, I don't want to make it like an all or nothing kind of thing because, as you said, like sometimes they're you know important. And so the idea is uh, that you know our our inner observer. I mean, you can use a sport term if you if you prefer like the captain, whatever works for you. Um, The idea is to be able to know what thoughts are relevant and to pay attention to and which ones can sort of be, you know, left to themselves. I I think as well, Hugh, if I can kind of just jump in there, the first example you gave about um, I've just made a mistake, the thought in itself is, is, is true. The person has just made a mistake, but if we dig down a little bit and think, okay, well, what is the actual distracting thought there? It's not about the mistake. It's about, I've made a mistake. I suck. I'm going to suck for the next 10 minutes. So it's, it's the mistake happened, but the actual distracting thought is about what's coming next. And 
that's the thing that we can be mindful of, accept that it's just, again, another heckler in the um, in the stands, and then refocus on what it is that's actually important now. So I think digging down a little bit and thinking, okay, well, what is the actual distracting thought here? Um, might be another way of, of, of looking at some it, of those. It actually, you, you, just, you guys reminded me of this story from the uh, the Eastern traditions, which, you know, most of the time, most of the of the modern, uh, whether even really in the clinical or counseling literature or in the sports psych literature, most of the time, mindfulness is really kind of uh, divorced from those Eastern wisdom traditions. Um, but uh, that does, they have some really great rich stories that can be helpful. And that brought to mind, there, there's a story of, uh, of this monk who has a student and um, they, they were traveling and they weren't supposed to make physical contact uh, with like sort of the normal people that they were, you know, that were non-monks. And, and so the story goes that the monk noticed that there was a woman who was having a hard time crossing this uh, stream or river. And so he actually uh, picks the woman up, helps her across this, uh, this, you know, this body of water and the students following along and, and then they continue on for a while. And after a while, uh, the student says to, to the master, um, how come you carried that woman? You're, you know, you said we're not supposed to, to touch, uh, you know, just common people. And he, he makes the point, well, I set her down after we crossed the river, you're still carrying her. So the, the idea kind of resonates, you know, that, that how long are we, you know, at what point is it okay for me to let go of the thought that I've made a mistake? You know, at what point does it no longer serve me? So these are all like kind of these phenomenological questions, they just these deep dives into our lived experience to kind of figure that out. Yeah, so I suppose how I'm understanding this now is that while in REBT, it's like if the thoughts are true, you have to get somebody to deal with what might be true. So you could you make them more robust and, and enter into a philosophical uh, change. The approach within mindfulness is going to be more so like, can you notice it? Uh, and then can you, you know, make a judgment? Is this a relevant thing that I need to give my attention to? For example, I've got a pain, therefore maybe I should, you know, speak to the coach quickly to see if I need to continue on versus I've missed uh, this shot. I've just missed it. That's in the past and I can't deal with that. So I just noticed that, but I pay relevant attention to the things which might enhance my performance. So is mindfulness really just then becoming a lot better at noticing, judging and separating the wheat from the chaff, uh, for want of a better term, of our thoughts? I think it can, it can definitely be helpful in that regard. Um, there's, and there's, there's really a lot of different layers to mindfulness and there are many different mechanisms that are explored. Um, but I, I think that that is, that can be particularly helpful. Yeah. So we, we've kind of talked a lot about what mindfulness is and given a couple of practical examples of, of how it might work as well. And and I wonder if we could maybe get into a little bit of the literature. I know, Hugh, you mentioned earlier on, you know, about evidence base and, and, and what the literature says. Um, there are there are some criticisms of, of the mindfulness literature, especially in sport. 
lack of randomized control trials, uh, inconsistent definitions of, of what mindfulness actually is, you know, within that literature, and the fact that it's actually quite difficult to measure performance outcomes. I mean, it's difficult to measure performance outcomes in anything in sport because there's so many variables going on, right? But for sure, you know, what 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 would you say to that? The criticisms of the literature, you know, does it actually make a difference? How do we know that it's you know improving performance or improving well being in in the athletes and coaches that that might use it? Yeah, so I would say you know for the time that we have, maybe like a helpful way to to think about it is to sort of partition the research on well-being and mental health, which really kind of, I mean, these are broad strokes, but a lot of that is found in the clinical and counseling literature. And then the sort of sport performance research, which is obviously the, the um, within the domain of sports ecology literature. And I mean, what we can certainly say is, is that you know the, the clinical research um, that began to take off in the early '80s, all right? Because I mean, and that was sort of predated. That the medical community, the Western medical community, um, really pioneered by like Herbert Benson, for example, took note of potential health benefits of meditation. Um, he particularly was interested in uh, transcendental meditation, and from there, that was like you know in the '70s, and then um, John Kabat Zinn actually took note and he really popularized in the early 80s mindfulness as we are discussing it now and so they had about you know the Gardner Moore article came out in 2004 saying they had a, about a 25 year head start on on just researching this so you know in a little bit of fairness um, it is much more well established the the well-being and sort of mental health benefits you know you can kind of you can kind of put those into a couple of buckets of of uh mindfulness alleviating you know clinical or otherwise unpleasant um psychological and in some cases physical conditions uh and then in ways that it sort of uh improves positive qualities and improves um psychological strengths and that sort of thing um so then the, the sports like literature you know, began, I mean, really that article came out in 04, but people began to take notice in subsequent years, you know, we're only looking at like, I mean, less than 15 years easily uh, of a research base. So, so, so there's that. Um, but it doesn't mean that the criticisms aren't valid regarding well, what, what do we have so far to work with? And, you know, something else I would say is, you know, I'm arbitrarily kind of partitioning this by like well-being for example and in performance but in in real life those things aren't separate <laughs> you know um those things are are not mutually exclusive um so so there's that and then regarding like the rct research you know it's used as sort of the gold standard of of research you know for 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 ob some obvious reasons there is a perspective that the rct is you know that that research design is it's really great for things like uh, pharmaceuticals for example um and, and and then it has some limits when it comes to say psychotherapy or sports ecology outcome research um, it, it doesn't mean it, that it's it's worthless in no way shape or form but it those you know those limitations are important to acknowledge so in particular 
um, you know, RCT research, it, it doesn't consider client preferences. You know, when you use that research design, you're kind of, you're creating um, an intervention that's going to sort of be uniformly, uh, hopefully uniformly given to a group. Um, and then you have your controls and whatnot. So it, it doesn't consider the client's preferences, their idiosyncratic goals or their culture. So the, the interventions don't get personalized in the way that they do in real life often. Um, it also omits a really important variable, which is the relationship between the interventionist and the, the client or the athlete, whoever that is. Um, and we know that, uh, that those relationships are, well, I mean, it, it's been pretty consistently demonstrated, certainly in the clinical counseling literature, that the quality of the relationship between, let's just say in the, in the therapy world, between therapist and client, often account for double the variance of outcomes as the interventions themselves, which is, is pretty humbling for us um, in some respects. But I think there's lots of reasons to believe that that's true between sports psychologists and athlete as well. If you don't have a good relationship with the person delivering the intervention, the sports psychologist, uh, then you're probably going to be less likely to adopt it. You know, you're probably, you know, you may not feel as safe at trying new things. So, so those are, you know, those are all some things to consider when we, just in the way that we look at, at what the, the studies are showing. Okay. So Joe, um, whenever you talk about RCTs, just for, again, the benefits of the, the people with a non-psychology background and RCT is a randomized control trial where you've got one group who's been exposed to the mindfulness and one group who isn't, and there they've been tested in that. But what you've kind of put forward here is that the relationship is really important. And I know there's research, uh, Wample 2015 uh, was excellent for highlighting the common factors. And what we're saying is that the relationship that is between the, the two people, the, the athlete and the psych, is really important. And that is part of uh, the effect of the, the therapy. I suppose you're really hitting on, uh, and I'm not too sure if you're aware of it, the dodo bird effect, which talks about the idea that therapies are not actually useful. It's uh, they're all the same and they're built off this idea of a relationship. But then I think actually a more up to date uh, paper in 2019 talked about how, you know, it's a synergistic approach so that, you know, you've got the relationship is, say, five, five units of effect. And the therapy is, uh, say, two units of effect, and you multiply those and you get 10. What you're, what you're kind of saying, if I understand it rightly, is that it's very difficult to test mindfulness because there's a degree of the effects of mindfulness are, are the, the process of teaching somebody mindfulness requires a strong relationship, which can't always be replicated in RCT trials because they have to be so rigorous. Is that, is that what you're getting at? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, uh, um, you know, this is not to suggest we throw baby Buddha out with the bathwater. You know what I mean? That that it's the dodo bird mm -hmm. effect, as you mentioned. That all that sort of all therapies are sort of equal in a sense. Um, I, I don't know. I, I personally have never considered, say, mindfulness, for example, 
to be particularly different than say like cognitive behavioral approaches in terms of the necessity of of a strong therapeutic alliance. So I, I don't know that I would distinguish it in that way. I would say that that's you know I think the research supports that 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 relationship is 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 usually important. So I don't know that 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 mindfulness is is necessarily different in that respect. Yeah. Okay. So it's kind of interesting because whenever, whenever you're talking about mindfulness, and I really like the idea of the guy who's having these uh, thoughts that are distracting to him being followed around by another guy saying those in my head, that that's, that seems like a really useful technique, but it also seems like a, a technique that, you know, if I sh- showed it to an RIBT practitioner, they would say, oh yeah, that's a innov- innovative way of doing exposure therapy or flooding. Um, where you're creating that environment like so there's a lot of overlaps between what mindfulness is and, and maybe really what we're doing is just understanding more this idea of what noticing is versus um you know cognitive restructuring within other therapies is that would that be a fair analysis because in my opinion like there's a lot more commonalities between therapies than there are um not common not commonalities if that's even proper English. I don't think it is. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you you definitely, yeah. I think there there there's overlap. Um, you know, talking about like the mechanisms. As you mentioned exposure, for example. Um, uh, I I I I think that exposure is actually an important mechanism of mindfulness uh, through both my own just my own practice as well as working with clients and in the literature. So, uh, you know, for example, um, in 2012, uh, Beer, Rothlin and Morgan, um, who are sports psychologists, uh, in Switzerland, they did, they published a review in 2012 and, and they, they reviewed the literature to sort of, to try to identify the mechanisms by which mindfulness has been proposed to, to work. And so they, they actually came up with nine such mechanisms that they identified. Um, they, they, it was a pretty, it was quite an undertaking. So they have, they came up with these nine mechanisms and then they, they also listed out what psychological skills were thought to sort of be impacted that were particularly relevant in sports psychology. They came up with 11 of those. Um, but exposure was one of the nine mechanisms, uh, that they had identified. Yeah, I mean, and 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 it, it, the others, you know, they include things like uh, acceptance, as we already hit, uh, you know, improved self-regulation, clarity about one's internal life, greater clarity, greater flexibility in sort of our behaviors, uh, less attachment, that is to say the outcomes, um, less rumination, and and basically better attentional control. So. Uh, th- those were the ones that they had had identified. Okay, so there's a lot of mechanisms there about how this can work. Pete, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I was I was just going to say, um, I remember sitting at a conference a few years ago. I can't remember which one it was, um, but it was Frank Gardner, who, who Joe mentioned earlier, who was talking about the idea that traditional psychological skills and mindfulness acceptance are completely separate they don't mix you can't combine them at all and i was sitting there thinking well 
I actually completely disagree with that. I didn't say it because it's Frank Gardner, right? <laughs> but I actually completely disagree with that because a lot of the mindfulness techniques, I guess, you know, we use imagery in a lot of the mindfulness exercises. We have to be able to understand how to set goals properly in order to um, facilitate the kind of committed action part of it. So I think, as Joe said, there absolutely is some some overlap there. And some skills that that kind of cross over those two traditions, if you, uh, for want of a better word. Yeah, and and like for example, Mark Anderson uh, down in Australia, he's written about this as well, and has also made a similar argument. You know that that some of the traditional sports psychology approaches contain very mindful um, skills. So for you know you, you mentioned some, so think about like for example progressive muscle relaxation um you know we're, we're calling our attention to the present moment sensations in various muscle groups um we're getting a little bit more involved than we probably normally do in mindfulness in the say contracting and relaxing of muscles but but there's very strong mindfulness components there Okay, so Joe, you, you have me now. I'm convinced that you know there, there's something here that we should be paying attention to uh, mindfulness. Um, I, I'm happy that you know there are effects. You, you've convinced me, and that that takes a lot of doing because I did come into this skeptical. Um, <laughs> but like, I want to share a story with you, and it's a really important story. Is I had a really sore back once, and basically what happened was I got recommended to go to this place for a massage went to the place and like as i walked in there's a, a big sort of like lipstick mural going up the stairs it looked kind of a bit dodgy i got upstairs and what, like what, what kind of story is this you <laughs> so anyway i have a good sore back i was recommended to go to this place um and i was causing me to limp and everything and i went in and the woman's like oh yeah you have a massage right go in there never been for, for a massage before simple country boy never done any of this stuff the woman comes out, tells me about these magic oils and how these magic oils are going to help me back my back and that I need to keep them on my body as long as possible. Don't go home and wash them off. And she gives them back a rub. And at the end, she takes her two fingers and goes down my spine, the whole way down my spine. And then she tells me that all my vertebrae are in the correct order. <laughs> and I just thought at that point, that woman doesn't know what a vertebrae is because if my vertebrae weren't in the correct order, there'd be serious issues. Um, <laughs> mindfulness mindfulness gets translated from what you've done what you've talked about like i'm convinced how do we know that some random person uh, isn't out there just taking mindfulness and you know selling a product and slapping mindfulness on the title like this woman was slapping massages and, and reorder reordering uh, my vertebrae um you know people are to a degree maybe unregulated unqualified and it's it's difficult to take research and translate that into a product and how do we know that people are actually doing that effectively it you know that is a problem because i i kind of call it like mick mindfulness you know a play on mcdonald's right like kind of like a there's a lot of in, in pop culture, 
references. I mean, I read, you know, in articles, uh, just pop articles, you know, not refereeing, just anybody who wants to write an article, you know, and sometimes in yoga circles, uh, uh, coffee houses in Venice Beach, like, for example, notoriously, like it, it kind of the, the understanding of mindfulness can get really fuzzy, you know, there can be a real drift about what it is. Um, and yeah, it kind of gets like associated with like positive thinking, um, uh, positive vibes. I'm not even sure what that is, but I hear it a lot. And, <laughs> um, for example, today, okay, uh, I, I told my mom I was going to be on your show. Okay, my mom, she's in the Midwest, 85, a little Irish lady, and uh, I was telling her I was going to be on the show, and, and, and you know, she, she's being very motherly. She said, oh, and she doesn't really know, I don't, she doesn't know what mindfulness is. She just knows I, I write about it a lot and do it all the time. So she says, now, Joe, just practice your mindfulness and, and just think positive, and I'm like, oh, Face palm. <laughs> I just say okay, um, but of course that's that is not what mindfulness is about. Um, sorry, mom. Yeah, so we can sort of clarify, you know, some of the things that mindfulness is not. You know, I mean, some of the things that I've commonly seen insinuated or even directly said is is like uh, that. For example, mindfulness is about clearing your mind of thoughts, having kind of a clear blank mind uh, that's that's not what mindfulness i mean they're they're that's another thing we, we tend to talk in the west about meditation as though it's kind of this one thing but really there's many types of meditation and 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 um i am you know aware that there are practices not mindfulness but other practices that maybe strive to do that um it's also you know as we've said it's it's not positive thinking it, it it's accepting whatever's there um, it's really important that that you understand what mindfulness is. It's, and I think fairly universally, there is a sentiment in the literature that if you're going to be working with people using mindfulness, you should have a personal practice. You need to understand it for yourself at a deeper level than just a, a mental exercise, but actually, or as an intellectual exercise. And... Um, to really trust what you're saying, because it's very counterintuitive, you know. So I think you, you touched on a, a pretty important point there, Joe, because one of the misconceptions of, of mindfulness is that it's this Zen-like experience, this complete absence of thought, um, this kind of peaceful sitting cross-legged in a field at, at sunset type thing. And then when they start practicing, and actually there are a lot of thoughts that are going on there and popping in and out. People can get very frustrated with that and think, oh, I'm doing it wrong. Absolutely. Again, do you have any tips for people who are maybe thinking about starting to practice mindfulness but are getting frustrated with the, the process of it? Well, for sure. I mean, that's another tricky thing is, um, you know, when you're doing mindfulness meditation, you're again, it's just, it's just having a non-judgmental, really compassionate awareness of your present moment thoughts, feelings, body sensations. So if you're having unpleasant feelings like anxiety, for example, or if your mind's like, um, you know, it's really like another metaphor is like our brains are kind of like popcorn machines and they like, they're just popping thoughts all the time. I mean, trust me, you don't want your brain to not be popping thoughts because that only happens really 
when we're dead. <laughs> so, so, so it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's good that that's happening. The thing is, if you're trying to, if you're feeling anxious, like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to meditate and I'm going to, I'm going to feel relaxed. And then you sit down and you start doing your meditation. Often like there's a focus on breath, the, the present moment breath. Um, and you're noticing you're feeling anxious and you're like waiting for the relaxation to come and you start getting frustrated and it's like, oh, this is a failure. And then, you know, you're more anxious than you were before. Right. Um, so it's tough because it's like relaxation may very well come about. And that's like one of the, like, we talk about the benefits of mindfulness and, you know, some of the well-established benefits, again, going back to the, the, the clinical and counseling literature, talk about, you know, reduced anxiety, reduced depression, less rumination of, uh, you know, less worry. Um, so the, but as soon as we start trying to change what's happening inside, I mean, I think there's a perspective we're not, we're not doing mindfulness anymore. Um, so it gets kind of tricky. That's why, as you, you know, as you mentioned, you want to make sure that whoever you're working with really understands what they're doing. So that brings me nicely onto the next question, really, which is how do we apply it? So, you know, for, for any students, psychologists listening, even the words meditation and mindfulness can strike fear into the hearts of athletes and coaches of people who don't quite understand it. They think it's some sort of wild hippie <laughs> nonsense or whatever. Um, some do, some don't. For sure. Um, so, if, you know, for example, if I'm introducing this to, to an athlete or, or a team, I don't even mention the word meditation. I don't, I don't even mention the word, word mindfulness. I might just talk about staying in the present moment because that's something that people can relate to a little bit, a little bit more easily. So, why should athletes and coaches not fear the idea of, of meditation and mindfulness practice? And how do you practically do it? So you've worked with athletes, you've worked with teams. How do you, how do you apply it in, you know, how do you get coaches to incorporate it into training, into practice? How do you, how do you get them on board? Well, I think, you know, if, if I would want to know that, you know, so if I have hopefully a relationship with either the coach or the athletes, um, if there were apprehensions or fears I would just want to ask right off the bat, what are they? You know, what are you afraid about this? Or what are your concerns? And um, and kind of go from there, you know, kind of based on all the things that we've covered. I'm not, I'm not going to present all of this information necessarily, most likely not at all, you know, a, a very select um, on my points to the coach or the athlete. But if there's any, like, as you mentioned, you don't have to use the word mindfulness or meditation. Um, I, I, I would say, you know, in my own experiences, I haven't really encountered a lot of resistance. I don't know. I guess it's, it's getting more and more popular. You know, when you have the, the Seattle Seahawks on board and you've got like LeBron James um, and Phil Jackson and more and more people talking about it. I like to kind of use the words because it to kind of help contribute to reducing any misconceptions or reducing uh, say stigma around it. But now you've got like apps like Headspace and Calm, you know, each of those apps individually. Other apps yeah, are yeah, available. they're they're <laughs> well, we're talking like, you know, uh, these are each valued over a billion dollars. And so but you you know you want to consider the culture of the team, the culture 
of uh, the athletes and the coach, you know, ways to introduce it. Like, you know, I, <laughs> Peter Haverell, who was on that, that, that panel back in 2016, he, he, he uses a phrase that I, I really like, I actually use it in my own planner. Ever since I heard him talk about it, there, there was a, there's a mindfulness and acceptance approaches in elite sports summit that's been held in Europe the past few years. And, and he talked about and during his presentation, this phrase that like in shooting, um, it's ready, aim, fire, not ready, fire, aim. And for some of us, like myself, with a little bit of the ADDs, I mean, sometimes it's just fire and, and you know, forget ready. <laughs> and then after the fact that I hit what I was shooting for, you know. So, so, but if we can kind of go with ready, aim, fire, and think of mindfulness as um, readying ourselves to really show up and be fully present to practice or to competition, it kind of gives you know, something a little bit more simple, simple to hang our hats on. And then from there, we can talk about, well, how, how do I incorporate it into uh, like pre-practice, getting ready for, or pre-competition. And, you know, it can be done if it's taught, if it's understood, it can be done as, as like a meditation, which I usually liken meditation to a mental weight room. So, so like, you know, I'll talk about, you know, with athletes, if you're a cyclist or if you're some other athlete and you're trying to build strength, um, whether for sprints or for climbing or whatever the case may be, then, you know, you go to the weight room, you might see a strength and conditioning coach. Uh, and you're, you know, the, the point of being in the weight room though, it, it's not explicitly, you know, I want to be the strongest person on squats in the weight room. It's like, no, I just want to strengthen those, those muscle groups so that when I'm on the course or on the field, that that translates into more power. So I, I always talk about meditation as it's like going to the mental weight room. It's not like to be the best, well, cause that's another thing that comes up, you know, cause people who are competitive and perfectionistic, they want to get a gold medal <laughs> at doing mindfulness meditation. Right. Um, and, and so you got to deal with those things and there's ways to deal with that too. But you know, so you can sort of incorporate the mental weight room analogy. Uh, and, and maybe that's like after it's been taught, maybe it's, it doesn't have to be done for 30 minutes. It doesn't have to be done for an hour, you know, even five minutes prior to practice. I, when I was teaching sports, like I got in the habit actually of we started class with like a few minutes of mindfulness, mindful breathing just to get everybody present. And when you do that with a team, suddenly everyone's listening and on the same page it can be really powerful um the, you know, so start with what the coaches want start with what the goal you know what are their goals for the team and then you can do something like you know ready aim fire okay well starting practice let's all get present you know let's and that might even be something shorter than meditation it might just be you know taking 60 seconds or it might be taking uh, five mindful breaths everyone's just going to sit or mindful stretching. Anything can be done mindfully. I'm really wanting to try this out now. I'm looking forward to having a mindful pint. So in terms of, you know, mindfulness, 
who shouldn't do it? I mean, we often talk about it in, in work. So the athletes that I work with uh, bench press and we say like they don't have to get good at goal setting or psychology or nutrition. They can't win medals in those by doing those areas better. They win medals by putting the weight in the bar and lifting the weight in competition. So like there's obviously what you've really highlighted and what I took away from that, what you've just said is like you don't have to be the best at this. It's It's a tool. But obviously at the same time, you know, we can't say that all tools are useful all of the time. So when would you not do mindfulness and when is it not appropriate? And are there people that it's not appropriate for, um, you know, with mental health issues, things like that? Um, I'm curious, what are your thoughts there? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's something that rarely ever gets discussed, you know, even, even in even in sports psychology circles, you know, let alone like with clients and that sort of thing. So um, it's definitely important. And, you know, there are some contraindications or, or there are some scenarios where you want to have someone who definitely knows what they're doing and probably with people who have those experiences. So, you know, it's just, you know, people who are maybe having any sort of like dissociative difficulties that is like, um, depersonalization or derealization, which is like refers to when we are, we feel sort of out of body or we feel sort of disconnected to reality. Um, that can be part of a stress response or a trauma response, you know. And mindfulness is really an associative exercise. That is to say, it is really getting more into our bodies, getting more present to reality. So it really, you know, hypothetically should be helpful for that. However, it can be used inappropriately. Again, you know, talking about um, if you have a, a, the wrong instructor, um, it can be misused as a sort of dissociative process if you don't know what you're doing. Also, people who maybe have any sort of, um, psych- are, are any sort of psychotic spectrums, there's special considerations around uh, those concerns um, I, i've i've also seen for example i mean there's there are mindfulness modalities for specific conditions so mindfulness based eating awareness training mb is specific to eating has been shown to be helpful with certain eating disorders and disordered eating however um it's i think it's been contraindicated for people i believe with uh, like restrictive disordered eating where they're they're restricting calories and 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 that sort of thing um that is not my uh, expertise so um i but i believe that's what i've i've read about so yeah there are definitely uh those scenarios i mean if you're working with somebody or if somebody has if they're in therapy and it's like a if they're in cognitive behavioral therapy or a, a therapy that focuses on modifying content of like thoughts and changing feelings and and whatnot that can sort of be confusing obviously to the person so that's another consideration if they're in therapy um it's a conversation to bring up to the therapist uh, in any of those scenarios and you know in general it's it's thought to be helpful for for like anxiety but of course if a person has been using distraction to to regulate anxiety or other unpleasant feelings. And then suddenly you're asking them to be present to all that. Well, it makes sense that some people are going to have more anxiety at first. Um, and so 
you know, there's a lot of nuances to be aware of when you're doing this. I mean, as we've seen, right? And so, but for whatever reason, it's been co-opted um, in, in pop culture and, and, and whatnot to be this kind of this thing that anyone can learn and teach. And, but there are, as you say, there's, there's, there are risks for adverse experiences. Do you know what, um, Joe, look, I'm over the moon that you've said all that. Uh, you've actually brought up contraindications that I wasn't aware of. And I think, you know, it's a testament to your level of knowledge and understanding because it's one question whenever somebody comes to sell you something as a sports psych that if you ask them what are the contraindications then they don't know what they are you shouldn't work with that person and you know it says a lot about what the, the confidence you have in 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 mindfulness and so like the the contraindications especially around eating disorders that's something that we would maybe be exposed to unknowingly as sports psychs especially within uh, long distance runners, uh, female athletes, uh, weight category sports, things like that. They're rife with, especially females, uh, with eating disorders because of the uh, environments and cultures within those sports and, and the need to maintain weight to, to enhance performance. Um, so that's that's amazing. Um, I also liked how you touched on how the fact that you know mindfulness might cause an increase in anxiety as someone learns the process you know, performance deteriorates as you introduce a new thing. And then as that uh, new element is incorporated, it enhances to a higher level again. You know, again, thank you very much for sharing the nuances. That's much appreciated. Absolutely. This notion that these things can be trained just like physical skills, that's, those, those are analogies that, that make it easier for athletes to understand and to take these things which are really, you know, obviously much more, abstract than physical skills and to, to have some things to kind of hang their hats on. So just like learning a new physical skill. Yeah. Like you said, you might have um, some disruptions in performance at first and that's not necessarily unexpected, um, but that the approach really needs to be systematic. You know, we've talked about so many different things and and it's fun to you know to play around with them to go try some of these things out. Let's you know I want people to also be aware. Um, it, you know if you kind of just play around with them and you're not sure if it's working or not, don't throw it out without giving it a fair go. You know and, and so but that means having some a more systematic approach. Um, Hugh, is there anything else? Kind of, have we got any other big questions? I don't think we really have, have we? I think this has been the most thorough investigation we've done yet on uh, this podcast. So no, I don't have any more questions. Um, I, f I feel like this has been a really, really useful uh, episode and we've learned a lot about what mindfulness is uh, and what it isn't. Uh, and we've talked in, in depth about some of the mechanisms by which it it can work and have a, have a positive impact. Um, I wonder, Joe, if, if for athletes, coaches, anyone really who's listening, what's maybe one thing that people can start doing right now if they're interested in, in kind of being a bit more mindful? Well, I think, uh, you know, again, I was like, I, I'm mindfully aware of this, like this little tension in my, in my being where it gets like the, the mindfulness sort of idea that we kind of like talked about. I always feel like like I want to give people something to try, but then I also don't want them to feel like, oh, well, 
this this thing that we distilled it down to if it doesn't work then you know the worst case scenario is then like oh there's something wrong with me i can't be helped by this thing and then that may not be it at all you know so i would just you know maybe what i could do is suggest like some follow-up resources you know where, where do you go from here um a book that i really like and it's called uh, a liberated mind it's by steve hayes it came out uh not even it was last i think late summer last summer um and it's it's a really great book uh steve hayes is the founder of one of the counseling based mindfulness approaches called acceptance and commitment therapy and um he does a great job of just laying it all out there and he actually does have in the towards the end he has like some chapters specific to different areas of life and it includes sport and performance there, there so there is a chapter there on that um of course there are lots of apps out there so to you know i would probably recommend over just like hey try xyz like you know check out the apps on the app store you you, you google like top mindfulness apps it's, it's going to come up with all kinds of things like um that have been sort of curated i my program as well like if people want something a little bit more structured um i haven't you know my dissertation was an eight-week mindfulness program for athletes so that's also something if people are interested in like i want to give this like a proper go i think it's appropriate for people who are just learning as well as people who have a mindfulness practice so so that's like another resource uh, i also have a free pdf that's a guide to my program so if you're interested in that it will reiterate a lot of the things we talked about and you don't have to get the program it's like no commitment there so uh, it can just be like another resource those are some things that come to my mind. We'll put a link to that in the description for this episode as well. So if people want to, if people want to check it out, they can do that. But I do want to say thank you very much, Joe, for joining us. It's been absolutely fantastic uh, speaking to you about all things mindfulness. And I think we've done what we set out to do, which was demystify it a little bit and and get into some of the research and the the, the, the theory. And um, yeah, thank you very much for joining us. It's been it's been brilliant. Well, yeah, thank you guys for the opportunity. And I appreciate the questions too. I, I think we were also quite successful at, at getting past, you know, kind of the pop headlines about mindfulness and really kind of digging a little deeper um, to see that there's, there's lots of possibilities, lots of possible benefits. And yeah, hopefully being a good steward of, of, of mindfulness and sport, I feel a, a responsibility around that because there's so many wonderful people in this area. Yeah, thanks very much. You've definitely fulfilled that uh, stewardship uh, in spades. So yeah, I'm blown away by the content today. Thanks very much, Joe. Thank you. Well, what a pleasure. What an absolute pleasure to have one of the world's leading experts in mindfulness join us today uh, on 80% Mental. I hope that you've enjoyed listening and I hope that you've learned something as well about what mindfulness is or isn't, maybe about how it's applied in the real world. Or even if you're a student listening and thinking about doing some research in this area, some of the things that you might look out for to make sure that research is really robust and, and contributing to, to the literature on mindfulness. If you have enjoyed listening today, please do subscribe wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. Uh, check out the website, 80percentmental, all words, uh, .com, or you can tweet us at epmpodcast. As I say, I really hope you've enjoyed listening today and we will see you next time. Well, well 
won't see you because it's a it's a podcast. Mm-hmm.